This is Masters in Business with Barry Ritholtz on Bloomberg Radio. This week on the podcast, what can I say? An extra special guest, Jim Chanos of Kinecos Associates. There are few people in the world who understand the side of the street that he works on better than Jim. He is a famed investigator into financial fraud. He has been a short seller for pretty much his entire career uh, on a fundamental basis. He understands why companies go out of business and what the signs are that investors should be looking for. He teaches a class at Yale on financial fraud. There really is no one better to discuss the world of short selling and fraud than Jim Chanos. So with no further ado, my conversation with Jim Chanos. This is Masters in Business with Barry Ritholtz on Bloomberg Radio. My extra special guest this week is Jim Chanos of Kinecos Associates. He is famous for exposing a number of financial frauds, including Baldwin United, uh, he was a critic of Drexel Burnham, and he, of course, was famously short Enron, which eventually went bust in a firestorm of accounting fraud and uh, problems. Jim Chanos, welcome back to Masters in Business. Always good to be back, Barry. Uh, next time we do this, we'll have to do it uh, in person, but for now... We'll, we'll operate remotely, and uh, I won't get to see you wince um, when we talk about certain <laughs> subjects. But for people who may not be familiar with you, explain exactly what Kinecoast does and, and how you work. Well, we're celebrating our 35th anniversary uh, this year. So uh, uh, what uh, I set up the firm in 1985 to basically provide hedge services for uh high net worth individuals it, it then morphed into institutional investors and basically we construct short portfolios based on fundamentals uh, for investors who uh, want to hedge their portfolios or or go more long by being short um, and so the uh, the ethos of the firm was was uh, I like to joke that that I'm in the insurance business um, and what we're trying to do is construct uh, better hedges than than just uh, uh, passively uh, hedging a portfolio using futures or uh, ETFs, and uh, and we're still doing it 35 years later. Do you tailor your short selections to a specific portfolio so you're hedging across the board the sort of risk they have? Do you, how narrow and specific can you get? Well, so we have we have funds that are are open to to a broader group of investors who are qualified, and and there we we have our core portfolio, whether it's a, a U.S. only or a global portfolio, of which the U.S. is a subset. But we also run managed accounts for large investors who have specific needs or uh, specific uh, restrictions. Uh, we can't do certain things. We can't do certain geographies. We have to be above certain market caps and so on. And, and again, it, it's up to the client. The idea is to, is to provide the service that the client needs and wants um, for, for their needs. So we, we try to let the client do the asset allocation, uh, and, and we will dial up or dial down the short exposure as needed. Uh, in our funds, however, of course, we need to do that. Huh, quite, quite interesting. So 35 years, that's a good long run. How has the art of short selling changed over that time period? Well, it's changed in a couple of ways. I mean, the, the, the biggest change and most obvious change is the uh, massive reduction in interest rates that have occurred over that period, the, the sort of generational or more. Um, and, and that, of course, uh, uh, reduces returns because part of the return on the short side is the rebate you get. From the prime brokers in the cash received from the short sale. Um, huh. There's a misconception out there that short selling is costly. In fact, short selling actually produces income to the extent of, of the rate on short-term rates. So it hasn't produced much income in the last few years, given where short rates are. But back in 1985, uh, we were starting with a 6 or 7 or 8% head start every year. 
because the short sale proceeds uh, invested in cash or T-bills yielded high single digits. So that's number one. And that, that's sort of beyond our control. Um, the other more interesting development is uh, how, how we and other investors, I think, process information. And, uh, and, and this applies to the long side as well. But on the short side, uh, you really uh, had to go out and, and find information in the 80s. If you had a 10Q uh, hot off the presses, if you will, from a filing, you might have information ahead of someone for two or three days. Um, today, information, as you know, comes at you at a fire hose. Right. And so it's not the obtaining of information. Um, it's the, the analyzing uh, and processing of the information and, and the sifting of information that I think gives you a, an edge in, in fundamental investing. Um, of course, then with the advent of, of much more machine learning and algorithmic traders, you have uh, uh, basically computers looking for word changes and looking for various different patterns uh, at a rate at which humans can't even comprehend. So in some ways, uh, generating alpha on the short side or the long side really involves sort of thinking beyond a, you know, what the immediate information is. Um, or more importantly, if the information being presented to you, which is often the case in my world, is intentionally misleading. And I think that's one of the few edges that short sellers have in this environment where the computers can read things faster than you can. Um, often uh, that information is being gamed. Huh, quite, quite, quite interesting. So, so you mentioned um, big machine learning, big data, AI, uh, algorithmic trading. Okay. There seems to be an infinite amount of competition on both the long-only side and the active side. What sort of competition exists on your side of the street, on the short-selling side? <laughs> well, after 35 years and, and uh, of basically a bull market, and certainly 10 years uh, of a bull market uh, uh, the last 10 years, as you might imagine, uh, there aren't a lot of people doing what I do. Um, I think longer term, that's probably a good thing. But uh, the number of people who actually want to uh, engage in fundamental short selling uh, usually can fit around a dinner table and sometimes does. Well, that sounds like an interesting meal. I'll have to worm my way uh, into an invitation the next time there's one of those. So so given, given this small amount of competition, um, what makes uh, each short seller unique? Are everybody looking at the same things and taking the same positions if you're all fundamental? Or are some of the short sellers out there a little more technically oriented? Well, again, if we're going to just speak about fundamental short selling, most of it is done within the guise of long short funds. So our Explain that a bit. Is like like a one thirty thirty or or something like yeah, that, or, or just a traditional you know some of the well known names that, that that we all know in the hedge fund world, you know have teams that that look for shorts. So that's that's really uh, our competition, and we consider them to be very good competition. Um, and then you have people, of course, that specialize. You can look at someone like Carson Block that that is focused sure. internationally and on China. Um, we've generally been generalists. We look all around the globe. Um, typically, uh, we've always looked in the mid to large cap area. There's an awful lot of short sellers who've done very well focusing on, on small caps and micro caps. Um, that, hmm. That's never been our world. And so, you know, we've generally avoided it for a lot of reasons. But um, there are people that do that. And, and, and then you have the whole new world of activist short selling where people go out and, 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 and publish um, to, on their website or on social media, uh, their research, um, you know, for, for everybody to see. And, and we've, our view on that is, is that we've, as you know, selectively disclose our ideas as we see fit, but, but don't publish, uh, long reports, nor do we publish on, on the vast majority of our, uh, uh, positions. We may, we may be public on five to 10% of our positions at any one time. So you raise a very interesting question here about short positions. Explain to the general investing audience why short sellers don't like to be public with their short positions. Well, there's a, there's a lot of reasons for it. A lot of them having to do with issuer retaliation. Number one, um, one of the there's lots of asymmetries on the short side 
And one of them is that uh, corporate managements don't like to be held to account by short sellers, by and large, and often will use shareholder funds, corporate funds, to uh, harass or litigate against short sellers um, in, the, in the guise of, uh, of, of trying to protect the company. And so that's number one, and that just raises various different agency risks for, uh, for someone that does that. Um, and number two, I mean, like all things being equal, I think as any businessman, you'd rather keep proprietary what you'd like to keep proprietary and only take, you know, issue public uh, what, what you have to or choose to. And uh, I think that that's um, one, of, one, of the, one of the odd paradoxes I, of that is, is that I've always wondered why the money management um, industry has not fought back on the, uh, on the SEC's disclosure rules for long investors um, who are not in an activist campaign or are not in a corporate control campaign um, because there were all kinds of uh, uh, people that follow investors uh, in their portfolios. And, and for investors who don't turn their portfolios over a lot, they're in, in effect giving away their intellectual property for free. And, huh, quite, and, and, quite fascinating. and the industry has never really challenged that. And I, I, I don't know why. Let's talk a little bit about the challenges of being short in a market that seems to want to do nothing but go up except for very brief periods. What have we quadrupled from the lows of 09 to the highs of 2020? How do you maintain short positions into the teeth of that? Well, so uh, there's a big misconception about our business uh, in that we run most of our accounts either actually hedged or benchmarked long. So, so again, it gets back to the whole idea that we're providing a hedge and not necessarily being directional uh, for most investors. Uh, so, and, and we started doing this in the mid '90s, uh, and, and the idea being that we're long the market in effect and short our stocks. And so, I, we're relatively market agnostic, um, and and just generally we're trying to create alpha from our short positions, uh, either going down uh, in, in actuality or, or underperforming relatively. Huh. So and, the idea, and... I, I assume that the market will go up over time, as most investors do. Uh, the problem is the failure rate among individual corporations is quite high. And, and so the idea is to try to winnow those out from a broad portfolio. Huh, quite, quite interesting. So given that, what do you use as a benchmark? Well, for the most part, it, for our U.S. funds, it's the S&P 500. Um, it, it's simplest and still, at the end of the day, most indices will, will track it one way or the other with variations in certain years. Uh, and then we use uh, the MSCI uh, for the global uh, portfolio. Huh, that, that's really, really interesting. So you mentioned you began with a mostly... Um, high net worth clientele, and that's morphed into an institutional uh, client base. How have those changes come about, and how has it affected what you do? So it, the the reason that that it's come about is that in the '80s, the hedge fund industry was still generally the purview of high net worth families and individuals, and it only really became. Uh, uh, it wasn't until the 90s that uh, institutions and investment boards and corporate boards got more comfortable with using hedge funds and other alternatives as part of their portfolio. Um, and so we, we began to see a growth in institutional investing in the 90s, particularly toward the end of the 90s. And then, and then you had sort of the golden era of hedge funds, which was 2000 to, to 2006, well, when hedge funds uh, sort of made their chops in the long short equity world by being short the right things in 2000 to uh, 2002, being short the uh, dot com bubble stocks and telecom and you know a lot of the things that got taken to extremes and being long value, and so hedge funds made money on both sides of their book for a number of years, and then of course the money flooded in, um, and then the uh, and then basically the uh, it all came crashing down for the hedge fund industry in, in long short in 07, 08, and 09, when uh, uh, hedge funds did not hedge 
or, or did not hedge as much as they should have and got caught just as much as most investors did um, in the in the bear market of 08, 09. And it's that, been, that, a t- been a tough slog ever since. I, I very much recall something you said in one of our prior conversations. If you go back 25, 30 years, there were 500 or so hedge funds and they all created alpha. Today, there's 11,000 hedge funds and it's more or less still those 500 hedge funds that are the alpha generators. Still, still accurate? I, I mean, I think generally, I, I don't know about the specific numbers anymore, <clears throat> but I think directionally and in magnitude, that's still a pretty accurate statement. Um, you know, what the, the problem, of course, until I think very recently, is that you just had a lot of, of, of fairly you know, reasonably sophisticated money trading against each other. Um, uh-huh. and, and the reason you get lots of alpha at different uh, parts of the market segment is because you get unsophisticated investors who come in and start providing capital and start doing dumb things with their money. And that was certainly the case in 1999 and 2000, where, where, where retail investors stopped buying mutual funds and started speculating in stocks directly, taking things up you know, to just incredible valuations. And for the most part, uh, in, in this last bull market, we saw it as mostly an institutional or passive-driven market until really the fourth quarter of, of last year. 20, uh, 2019 and, and the first couple months of 2020, where I saw the uh, retail investors come back in a big way. Um, it's as if someone flipped the switch in October, November of last year. And, and all of a sudden, story stocks began doing what they did in 1999 and early, early uh, 2000. And uh, that for us was a, was a bit of a warning sign. Yeah, the the Ten-year bull market will will do that on the um, mom and pop side, but I'm curious on the institutional side. You're known as as somebody who identifies corporate fraud or malfeasance or companies that are potentially going to go bankrupt. What sort of a spike do you see following an event like 0809 or what's happened so far in 2020? Well, it's interesting in in um, in. In oh uh, in in ninety nine and two thousand or oh eight oh nine the reactions were a lot different. Um, the two thousand to oh two bear market was drawn out. It was every bit as vicious as as oh eight oh nine. I think people kind of forget that Nasdaq was down eighty percent uh, from the peak in two thousand to oh two, and the S and P was down forty percent. So very similar kinds of drawdowns that we saw in 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 oh eight oh nine. In 0809, it, it seemed to be mostly compressed into one year, uh, the fateful year of 08, um, where it was more spread out over uh, two years in, in uh, 2000 to 2002. Um, and what we saw in, in uh, we saw just basically sharp rallies in both bear markets, but uh, um, in, in 2000 to, to, to 02, um, the rallies uh, were were weaker and weaker and were, were, were sold each and every time. Um, in 08, 09, it seemed to me the values seemed a lot sharper at the time, but shorter, given the compressed yeah. nature of what we're seeing. You know, as to what just happened in March, April, I, I have no idea yet. I don't know that anybody else does. Uh, we'll see. I mean, uh, certainly the willingness to speculate uh, has come back in a, a, a very quickly in the month of April from what we saw in March. And, uh, and that, I think, as any observer of the market will tell you, um, that is at least a, a little bit disconcerting, given how fast people are willing to sort of overlook what, what appears to be happening to the economy um, with the assumption that everything will be just fine um, come 2021. And uh, certainly that might be the case, but it might not. We just don't know. Well, well, we'll get to the markets and the economy in a little bit. I'm intrigued by the your reference of rallies during a bear market. I recall very vividly watching a stock you were short, Enron, fall for a year, a year solid, and it did not move in a straight line. It would drop 15, 20% and then rally back almost two-thirds, three-quarters of what it lost. 
How yeah. challenging is it to sit in a position like that, that you're short and it feels like you're getting, even though you're on the right side of the trade, it feels like you're getting your face ripped off every day. You know, it, it's, um, and, and those rallies test your conviction. Um, and, and the idea is that if, if the fundamentals haven't changed, they're certainly getting worse. You know, you, you just have to, to keep your conviction and, and watch your risk levels like anything else. Um, but yes, it does seem to, to, uh, to me and to others that, that companies that are particularly controversial, um, and, 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 and going into, uh, what might be their, their terminal phase, um, tend to have increased trading volatility. And, uh, that, that is just, we take as a given. So we give these things a little bit more wide parameter, um, when they, when they begin to, uh, to have problems. But it, yes, I mean, I, I remember, I remember uh, a number of situations uh, in in the last twenty years where the the company ended up uh, going bankrupt, and yet there was a series of of forty and fifty percent rallies along the way that would have you believe that everything was was fine and they'd solved their problems when in fact they never huh. had. My my big takeaway from being short specific companies in oh eight oh nine was to learn to marry a put as opposed to merely being short naked the stock. I, I wish I had learned that before the crisis as opposed to after, but such is life. <laughs> Let's talk a little bit about where we are in the state of the economy and the state of the market. It's the end of April 2020. This market has recovered a substantial portion of the sell-off that began in February 2020, are the markets being optimistic, too optimistic, or are they seeing something that the rest of us might not be seeing? Well, obviously, I, you know, it's too early. It's always too early to tell. Um, but what I, I would say is is that um, you know we've we've been saying uh, that. I think market participants, whether you're a bull or a bear, are writing off 2020 um, as as you know just just a, a massive, massive uh, deceleration uh, and decline in the economy, and and really the markets will look forward to to figuring out okay what what are businesses worth based on sort of a normalized um, rate of return, and that's where things get interesting because if you look at if you look at where the markets have come back to. Um, we were supposed to we were supposed to make about 170 175 dollars on the S&P this year that that's out the window um i think the number was roughly about 170 last year um and and so the the estimates i've now seen for 2021 uh have uh, the S&P back to the sort of 170 dollar number but that's starting to come down um so we've basically discounted back a, a recovery, I, I, for lack of a better term, uh, a full recovery in 2021. And I'm just not so sure that, at least in the case of some businesses, that that optimism might be a little bit misplaced. So, so let's stay with that theme. If we're looking at originally 2020 profits on the S&P 500 of $170, first question is, where do you really see that number shaking out by the time 2020 is over? And second, what sectors are going to be uh, the biggest pain points of that decrease in profitability? So, I mean, you, you know, <clears throat> for 20, 2020, it's anyone's guess. And I think we'll see a lot of the kitchen sink phenomenon that management teams will realize that Wall Street's giving them a pass for this year. So, they're going to they're going to load whatever costs they can in 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 the rest of this year. Um, where I am a little bit more skeptical is 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 terms of ongoing profitability in 2021. I I will be surprised. It certainly could happen, but I will be very surprised if we're at 2019 levels of profitability in 2021. Um, and certainly for some industries, I think it's going to be a lot more challenged. Whether you're you know, in the in the travel or, or leisure business, the restaurant business, um, a variety of other things, companies relying on on um, sort of robust um, uh, supply chains are going to have problems, 
and and consumer behavior may change. We don't know yet. I mean, we're everyone's in lockdown, um, and and what kind of permanent changes are there going to be? Um, you know, in a post-pandemic world, I, I don't know that we 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 know for sure. And then on top of that, you, I think we'd be remiss if we didn't talk about not only the the political side, but the political cost to corporate America from another round of bailouts. And and I I really think it will be hard pressed for corporate America to keep a, a 21% corporate tax rate going forward, for example. And that makes a huge difference. You know, we did some numbers, and, and that $170 2019 level on the S&P 500 drops down to $135 um, if you change the tax rate back to 35%. Uh, which is what one of the parties is certainly advocating. Um, and so you could just simply get a, a, a rescission of the uh, Trump tax cuts um, as one possible alternative that would uh, change earnings power for the intermediate term, you know, rather permanently. Huh, quite, quite interesting. Here's the pushback I hear to that, and it goes something like this. After September 11th, we heard that nobody was going to fly again, that travel was going to be a problem, real estate in, in New York and big cities were, were going to be affected, and we ended up not seeing that sort of response after six months or so. Might we see the same sort of recovery? Absolutely, and, and, and we, we certainly might. Um, but after, I mean, I think we understood that 9-11 was... was the instance of wrong place, wrong time, right? I mean, so, so there were there were countries and and peoples who lived with terrorist attacks, such as the UK and Israel and other places, for decades, right? And and we 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 had a we had a, a basic uh, template there that those economies generally shrugged off terrorist events that were you know, you know bombings and that sort of thing. Um, the U.S. being the U.S., we 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 handled it a little differently. We went to war, but um, but but I think that that there was a sense that okay, um, you you know if you were in the wrong wrong square, wrong building, you know uh, that 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 is a sad thing. But um, a pandemic is something quite different because it it transmits, and so I think that that's why this is this is so different. Um, and, and I think is, is going to be with people for a while in the way they change their behaviors. Uh, again, I, I certainly expect that most activity will go back to somewhat, somewhat normal. But corporate America uh, it generally is a very leveraged entity. And, and we've had years and years and years and years of cost cutting. We've had uh, interest rates go down to 0%. We've cut corporate tax rates dramatically. So you have you have operating margins and net margins that are about as good as they've ever been. Keep in mind that revenue growth has not been great in the last ten years, and so huh. um, you had you had global economy that was slowing before coronavirus, um, and we haven't even gotten to my favorite country, China, yet. And and so uh, there small changes in activity here um, could have disproportionate impacts on profitability for lots of different industries. And, and yet it would seem to be back to normal, you know, as we go about our day-to-day -day lives, it just might be that corporate America is not as profitable as it used to be. So you referenced China. Let's briefly look at what's going on there. How significant is this pandemic to that giant populous nation? And what is their business community look like? What is their investment climate look like in the years once we get past this pandemic? Yeah, I think that, that one of the underappreciated things that's happened uh, during this pandemic has been a, a, a dramatic hardening of U.S.-China relations um, that, that has occurred um, for a lot of reasons, including the pandemic itself. But um, uh, keep in mind, last month, China expelled uh, a number of Western journalists from the country. Um, we've had this war of world, words between the Trump administration and, and China regarding the pandemic source. Um, but and if this had happened last year when we were having the trade talk travails, I think it would have been uh, far more uh, newsworthy. But it's been kind of been put on the back page. 
But I, I think that the West's view and even Europe's view of China has hardened dramatically in the last few months. Um, I know uh, certainly the, the Democratic, the Democrats' view of China has also hardened uh, in the last handful of months. So we have a situation where we're getting a little bit more adversarial politically. So for whatever that means for, for ongoing trade talks. Um, but I also think that, that corporate America has kind of learned its lesson with the tariffs and everything else, that there's an increasing nationalism at work here and that bringing your supply chain out of China may make some sense. Um, on top of all that, China is still remains, the, to me, the big credit story globally. Um, we just took a, uh, updated our look at all the Chinese uh, large banks, for example, and they basically grew their assets last year anywhere from 10 to 15 percent, sort of as they have been. Um, so, you know, every year uh, China seems to grow uh, its, its debt uh, at some multiple of nominal GDP. And we've joked that this can't keep going on forever, but so far it has. Um, but now we, we see just monstrous amount of, of debt, uh, mortgage debt, personal debt, corporate debt in the Chinese economy. And that's something that China still is going to have to grapple with going forward. Um, they haven't had to do so in a, in a major way, but at some point it will, it will happen. Um, Chinese apartments are still the most important asset class in the world, in my view. We were talking earlier about the challenge of being short in the face of a rising market, when we see the government reaction to a crisis, when we see the Fed adding a couple of trillion dollars to their balance sheet and Congress passing the CARES Act, which was over $2 trillion, I guess we're going to have to start calling that CARES Act 1 because it looks like there's more and more of that coming. What does that do to the market? What does that do to the economy? And how do you feel about being short in the face of almost $5 trillion in stimulus? Well, well, first of all, remember, we're, we're, as I mentioned, we're, we're also long, the S&P and the MSCI. So, mm -hmm. um, so again, we, we try to focus on, on how central bank activity uh, impacts certain industries and our stocks. Um, but I, I think that, that one thing I will say, you know, regarding the CARES Act and, and the, the, the PPP payroll assistance program is that once again, the federal government has been asked to backstop business. And I don't want to get into um, the semantics uh, and the, and the uh, ideology of, of whether or not this is capitalism or not capitalism. Um, I have my views on that, as everybody else does. But what I, I do think is that it means that if the U.S. taxpayer is going to stand behind corporate America for every unanticipated risk, and, I, and I, 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 I do look askance at people say, well, nobody could have foreseen this. So therefore, you know, everybody deserves a bailout of some certain amount. Um, my point on that is, is that the real risks are always the ones you don't foresee. Um, because if you do foresee them, you mitigate them or insure against them. Um, and so if the taxpayer is once again going to be on the, the hook for trillions of dollars, um, to support businesses and, and support uh, their employees, and I certainly think we should be supporting their employees. I'm not, I'm not as convinced on on uh, the rest of the corporate bailouts. Um, well, then certainly I think that the taxpayer deserves a premium going forward, um, and and that corporate tax rates should in fact go higher, because in fact uh, that should be the in effect the insurance premium that is paid to the U.S. taxpayer every year. Um, to cover these blanket risks that keep showing up every 10 years. And so, uh, and I think that's going to be a very strong case to the American public um, that if you're going to stand behind um, corporate America uh, with the U.S. Treasury and also the Federal Reserve, i.e. the currency, um, then you should be compensated for it. And, uh, and I think uh, that, that, I think, is going to be a pretty strong argument. Yeah, I'm, I'm fascinated how not only are there no atheists in foxholes, but there are no uh, Austrians or libertarians during financial crises. It's amazing how suddenly everybody becomes pro-bailout at, at the first sign of, of trouble. But you raise a really interesting question about the upcoming election. 
Is this going to be uh, essentially a referendum on how President Trump has handled the coronavirus? Or is this a bigger ideological debate between labor and capital, between taxpayers and bailouts? Yeah. So so I have this view that, that you know, labor is kind of... Uh, uh, I don't know if it's a, 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 a Marxist view or, 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 or whatever, but I, I do believe that, that we've seen in the U.S. these sort of long waves of capital versus labor. And, and uh, you know, labor became ascendant uh, with the New Deal in the, in the, in the 30s. Um, and, and we took a much, more, uh, a much more statist approach toward helping workers um, some countries took the statist approach too far in the in, in the late 30s, and we end up at war. But but that all changed um, with with the great inflation of the 60s and 70s, and the fact that business was on its rear end and capital had been treated pretty shabbily, um, particularly from the late 60s to the late 70s, and with the election of Margaret Thatcher in 79 in the UK and Ronald Reagan in the US in the 80, the pendulum began to swing back. And we, we began cutting capital gains taxes. Central banks aggressively, uh, the Paul Volcker fought inflation. Um, and and we, we saw uh, returns on corporate assets, you know, begin to uh, appreciate dramatically. And, and of course, we also know that median wages and labor rates pretty much hit their peak in the late 70s. Um, and so I think that, that there was has been a long sense punctuated um, by acceleration in the uh, global financial crisis, that the little guy was being left behind, the worker was being left behind, and I think in a, in, a, in an interesting way, Donald Trump tapped into that in 2016. I just don't think uh, that he really meant it, um, and and i.e. it was just a message to get elected, as opposed to following through um, with policies uh, that were going to really really change that. Um, with this latest set of bailouts, um, I think when, when fear turns to anger, as it inevitably will, as we sort of look at, at you know, who got bailout money, who, who took money they shouldn't, we're already seeing some of that. Um, I think that that, that that anger is going to be stoked even more. And so the question is, do we finally see policies like a rising minimum wage higher corporate taxations, higher rates on capital gains, end of carried interest, um, that is a lot less um, capital friendly and a lot more labor friendly coming out of this. And, and I, that's, I think, going to be one of the most important political economy questions that investors will have to think about. Huh, that, that's quite interesting. I, I, I think you are dead on when you reference Trump's brilliant messaging in 2016. There, there's a footnote discussion about whether when he first began running, he really wanted to win or it was just a, a brilliant marketing ploy. But he has tapped into a form of nationalistic popularism that uh, certainly resonates with 30 to 40 percent of, of the electorate. So really, what is the 2020 election about? If not the incumbent, it sounds like you think there's a longer cycle uh, and the pendulum is swinging from one extreme uh, and it's beginning to reverse and head in the other direction. Am, am I misstating that? I, I think there is. I mean, I, I, if you look at certain certain U.S. polling things, I mean, look at the support for a national health care program. It, it's broad, it's dramatic, and it cuts across party lines. Look at uh, the support for higher minimum wage. Again, it's broad, it's dramatic, it cuts across party lines. There's a number of these issues that 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 cut across party lines that I think the the the, the heads of the parties have tried to sort of ignore. Um, that that uh, because obviously there's lots of you know lots of donor interest for it to be ignored, but uh, there really is a view out there. Um, and I think another set of bailouts is only going to make this 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 uh, sense that we've had since the global financial crisis of unfairness of how taxpayers were bailing out, you know, guys who shouldn't have been bailed out. Um, we're going to see that again in a major way, I think, after after 2020. 
and 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 you ignore it at your own peril. I I, I keep you know telling people um, this is the set of circumstances we have now for corporate returns in corporate America is about as good as it's going to get. I mean, it's going to be really hard after, uh, after years and years of cutting interest rates, cutting taxes, um, cutting costs, uh, going global, um, slashing labor rates. Um, you know, this is, this is pretty good. Um, <laughs> and, and there's lots of reasons to believe that you will revert to the mean in some of those, uh, some of those items. And that could have just huge implications as I mentioned earlier, for corporate profitability. So I recall in 2016, you were a pretty big donor um, to the Democrats. Who did you like originally in the Democratic primary? And what do you think of the race now that it's become a head-to-head between Trump and Biden? <laughs> well, I mean, as, as, as I think you know, I mean, I, I'm, a, I'm a, a longtime friend and supporter of the vice president. So um, I, I actually wrote in his name in 2016. Um, uh, and, and so, um, it, 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 I want to be consistent. And wait, I, was I, that I, in, was that in New York or in Florida? Cause if it you was did in, it New in, York, New York, in New York, voting. all right. Yeah, so we'll yeah. let you, we'll let it go. If it was in Florida, they're going to be some finger wagging difference. at you. Yeah. I, yeah. I, 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 and I, and, and I, I did so with that in mind, voter as a New York voter, but, but, um, look, I, I think that, uh, I think for lots of reasons um, that, that we don't need to get into, he's he's a far better candidate, uh, not least of which I think we're going to need, given the, the the polarity in this country, I think we're going to need a period of healing, uh, not only internally but externally with our allies. And uh, and, and I think uh, Vice President Biden um, is far better um, uh, able to, to do that uh, and, and and then turn turn this over to the next generation uh, of, of Democratic leaders, which I think he will do. But it's going to be look, it's going to be an interesting election. I think that all all accounts are it's you know it's it's a pretty tight race as of spring of 2020. A lot can happen in the next six months, as we know. And it's also going to boil down to uh, to a handful of states. Although I did see one interesting thing that that made me uh, that gave me. Um, uh, a little bit of pause, um, and that is uh, someone pointed out that uh, uh, there are eight states that Trump took in 2016 that are basically right now in the toss-up category within margin of error. Um, there are no states that Hillary took in 2016 that are in that same category. That that makes a lot of sense. You You... I have to go back to part of your statement earlier because it sounded like you were hinting that you think Biden is going to be, assuming he's elected, only planning on staying one term. Did I did I pick up that? <laughs> no, you, turn you, it over you, to the next generation. You you are you are you are putting words in my mouth. I did not say that. However, okay. I yeah. think that uh, I think that his vice president selection will be made with that obviously in mind. Um, and, and I think that uh, I would be very surprised if the vice president uh, chooses someone who's 75 years old to be his running mate. Um, so, so, so not Elizabeth Warren or Bernie Sanders? I suspect it won't be, but I don't know anything. Uh, I, right. I, suspect, uh, I suspect it'll be a younger woman. Uh-huh. So like an Amy Klobuchar or someone of that generation? Uh, probably, as I say, I don't know anything, and so uh, I, I think we'll know within the next month or so. But uh, I suspect it will be a younger woman. So, how concerned are you, as a Democrat, uh, about Biden's reputation as a gaff machine? Uh, so, the things that endear people uh, to Joe Biden, I, I don't think have changed, and I don't think the vice president has changed. Uh, he is a plain talker. He, he, he says what's, you know, in his head and in his heart. And, uh, and I think that, that people actually, the people that like Joe Biden, like him for that. Um, and, 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 you know, then again, uh, can we just compare him to, uh, who's in the white house now? And, and so I, I, for anyone, anyone that always raises that issue, I've also seen, you know, spent time with the vice president and will tell you. You know, I've seen the man uh, very recently 
by heart repeat uh, uh, legal opinions. For example, um, Scalia's uh, uh, legal opinion on handguns that was written back a number of years ago in a debate on gun control we had at my apartment. I, I saw the vice president literally recite verbatim um, paragraphs from that opinion. And, and, and this is someone who, who's been in office for a long, long time, both in the Senate and, and uh, as Obama's vice president. Um, he knows things and he knows people who know things. And he's based he bases decisions on science, and 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 again, I mean, this is this is what I think most of us, whatever your your political leanings, kind of expect of people in the highest office in the land. And to me, that that would would be a refreshing change. But as I said, so, it's going to be a tight it's going to be a tight it's going to be a tight election, and uh, it's going to come down to the wire. So I completely disagree with you, and I will save my rebuttal for the next time we have you at dinner. I have two last political questions I have to ask. One is, you, you, you mentioned the president has his own tendency towards gaffes. I've heard a lot of people say nothing sticks to this president. Time and time again, as both a candidate and an elected official, he does things that would have absolutely torpedoed any other candidate. What are your thoughts on that? I, I have some of my own. How mm -hmm. has he managed to become the Teflon Don? Well, Barry, I mean, you have to remember in, in U.S. political history, 40 percent of the country will vote for a potted plant because it's not the other guy. Right. Um, in, 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 in all of the biggest landslide elections, the loser got around 40% of the vote. I think McGovern right. got 38, as I recall. But, I mean, it just, it, it is, we are, to some extent, you know, it, it's your guy, right or wrong, um, in, in the United States. And so that number usually coalesces around 40%. Um, and so I think that, that for people that, that are going to try to, to put, uh, try to put rationalization as to why people support one candidate or another, uh, you know, despite whatever they do, you can kind of start at 40 percent and, huh. and then figure it out. Um, and, and what that means is, is that this election is going to come down to independence again. And uh, one of the things that struck me in the 2016 election in the exit polling was that if you looked at people that disliked both candidates. Right. Um, they tended to then vote for Donald Trump. Right, right. And, and so I, 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 I just saw an article yesterday that said over the past two months, the number of 2020 undecideds has just about doubled, which is quite fascinating. Yeah. So I think that once, once we get out of our bunkers and, and we, there's a bit of a normalized campaign, I think you'll see the differences. I suspect you will. Um, and, and let's not forget, I mean, this, this last election also came down to about 80,000 votes in five states. Right. And it, it was a much closer run thing than, than I think uh, others would have you believe. And, and oh, yeah. He threaded the needle, and, and you had the Comey situation uh, a week or two before the election, and his margin of victory in those five states was actually smaller than the vote that Jill Stein got. Exactly. And so, so again, I think that, that you know, we, we, we drew a lot of conclusions from that. But on the other hand, uh, I, I suspect uh, the Biden campaign, uh, I, I kind of know the Biden campaign understands this, understands the battleground states. Um, I think that they will not make some of the mistakes the Clinton campaign made. And we'll see. But, but it, it will, again, be, be a close thing. Last political question before we move on. Had the coronavirus pandemic erupted a year earlier, would Andrew Cuomo be the Democratic nominee? <laughs> I'll pass. I'm a friend of the governor's as well, so I'm going to pass on that question. All right. Well, you could you could pass that along to me to him on, on my behalf and tell him um, that's what I'm thinking. All right. So let's do our favorite questions. We ask all of our guests. You're under lockdown. You happen to be in Florida. 
What are you streaming these days? Tell us what you're watching on Netflix. What are you listening to in podcasts? What are you doing to keep entertained during this uh, shelter in place? Well, I mean, first of all, I've I've been teaching my Yale class on financial fraud uh, remotely uh, this spring. So uh, so uh, one day a week I've uh, I've had to uh, I've had to uh, get acquainted with uh, with uh, my class remotely and, and do my lectures. Um, in terms of entertainment, I will tell you one thing wait, that, that uh, we have watched recently that, uh, apropos of our political discussion, that I really, really have gotten into is uh, the new series on FX, Mrs. America, which uh, is the story of uh, Phyllis Schlafly and the Stop the ERA movement versus uh-huh. uh, the National Organization of Women, uh, Gloria Steinem, Bella Abzug, Betty Friedan. And, and it's just this great 1970s period piece. Um, Kate Blanchett plays uh, Phyllis Schlafly, and it's um, it's well done. As someone who went through that as a kid of the '70s, uh, I've gotten a kick. Uh, I've gotten a kick out of uh, out of that series recently. Um, huh. And I just uh, finished. I, I just finished a great book. Since I'm stuck in Miami, I finished a great book, a financial history book, which I would uh, highly recommend to your listeners on the Great Florida Land Boom. Um, that uh, that is just a, a fantastic history of, uh, of the first credit bubble of the Roaring Twenties, uh, which was uh, the Florida land boom and the Miami Beach land uh, land bubble um, from 1920 to 1925 that uh, preceded um, the Great Crash. And it's just a great history of Florida and a great history of of sort of speculation gone mad um, before the hurricane hit. And dashed all those hopes. Uh, uh, it's a terrific financial read. So, so let's stay with books because the one of the last times we had you on, you recommended a book that I ended up not only loving but recommending to a bunch of people who also loved it, and that was a world lit only by fire. Just a fascinating, oh, yeah. just just a fascinating history. Tell us some other favorite books you like to recommend. What else are you reading? I'll give you one. I'll give you one from my bookshelf that I dust off every few years, um, and, and I picked it up again. It's on my, my nightstand. I'm going to try to get through it. Uh, hopefully, when my class ends in a few weeks. But every four or five years, I, I come back to uh, the great Carl Sagan's book, The Demon Haunted World, and and, uh-huh. and I can't. And I can't. I don't know if you know it, but yes, it, it, it's it's a terrific book uh, by by Sagan. One of the last he wrote before he passed away. Uh, about how we think about things as a as um, humanity and why we believe certain things we do in in the absence of evidence, and he goes into you know whether it's witchcraft or belief in ghosts or or whatever it might be um, belief in you know what makes it particularly topical is is the belief in in cures with no evidence as we've seen more recently with the coronavirus and why people are willing to to glom onto stuff. Um, and it's just a wonderful, wonderful book about kind of why we are who we are when it comes to uh, belief in the supernatural and, uh, and, and in, in a variety of other sort of beliefs we have. Um, it, it makes me think every time I reread the book. I have that book on my shelf, and I, I haven't read it in, I don't know, 20-something years, but I'm going to pull that off. And I'm also going to give you a related recommendation. Please. <clears throat> I, I'm trying to remember his name, but the name of the book is called Heretics of Science. The author is a journalist, I think, out of Australia or the UK, and he embeds himself with the wackiest of groups trying to figure out the flat earthers and the anti-vaxxers and just uh, the KKK, like one group after another that is very much looked askance at by the general public. And his conclusion more or less is all of these folks have a very fundamental error in their basic world's model in their head. And it's like aiming for the moon. If you're off by a couple of inches, you miss by millions of miles. And extrapolating a little bit of flat earth into the rest of the world, you end up with fairly normal otherwise people who believe absolutely insane things. You, of all people, would like it because you're in the, the business of 
figuring out what's true, what's false, and why people sometimes believe things that just are kind of wacky. I will I will order it today. Thank you for that recommendation. Sounds Heretics great. Of, it reminds, right. It, it reminds me of that great study, and I think there was a book out of the University of Chicago in the late 50s um, where the uh, researchers embedded themselves in, into a group that believed uh, aliens were going to come down and end the world. And uh, as it became, uh, with, with a series of dates for the end of the world, and as the dates uh, came and went without the end of the world, um, the movement lost more and more members. But there was an interesting observation that those that remained in the movement hardened their views as opposed to uh, uh, loosened their views on, on this, this series of predictions that the alien would, would come down and, and whisk them away and, and, and end the world for everybody else. And, and uh, that, that as, people, as people were shown evidence, uh, of course, that this was, was not true, um, that affected uh, a number of, of believers, but the believers that remained actually hardened their view against the set of facts. And, and, the boomerang and effect. Some of that as well. Yeah, the boomerang effect. And, and when we talk about it doesn't matter which political party or, or which belief system, that core 40% has some cognitive dissonance and doesn't want to admit error. And they just double down no matter how much evidence you throw at them. If anything, it, it just makes them believe it all the more. Yeah, yeah. And, 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 and that, has, that has implications for not only markets, but politics and lots of other things. All right. So let's get to our final two questions before we uh, have to let you go. What sort of advice would you give to a recent college grad or, or one of your uh, Yale students who was interested in a career in either finance or the fine art of fraud detection and short selling? <laughs> don't <laughs> um what what look i what i when i got into wall street in 1982 nobody no in 1980 excuse me um nobody wanted to be there I, the guy who hired me in chicago w was bemused that i was looking for a job in in the investment world um with the dow at 750 and having gone nowhere since 1966 and i i made more money uh, in the previous summer, working in a steel mill for two and a half months, that I made my first full year on Wall Street. That's how that's how out of favor Wall Street was in 1980. And and we talked about the the pendulum was about to swing, but I didn't know it. Um, we're at the other end of that extreme right now, um, where whereby finance has paid immensely well for the last 40 years. We've seen a financialization of the economy. Um, we've seen lower tax rates. We've seen all those things. And I've got to think that, that um, being a, a money manager, whether you're a, a, a long only guy, a short seller, a hedge fund manager, a private equity guy, I, I think it's just going to be a lot tougher uh, going forward than, than the last 40 years has been. Um, and I'm just not so sure the rates of return are going to be there. Um, having said all that, um, if, if it's something you're still, you know, convinced you want to do, um, I think you have to adjust your expectations, um, as to, uh, as how remunerative it's going to be going forward. And our final question, what do you know about the world of investing, hedge funds, short selling today that you wish you knew when you began back in 1980? That's, that's literally 40 years ago. <laughs> yeah, I, 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 well, I, what I really wish is I would have just bought some, uh, uh, some, in, uh, some, uh, uh, zero coupon treasuries in 1981 at 14% and, you know, just went to the beach. But, uh, <laughs> since uh, I wasn't that, that prescient, um, I, I think that, that one of the things I certainly, um, wish, I wish I had known, um, was to to be far more open in what I looked at as in investing opportunities. I was a pretty U.S. centric guy um, until 2005, um, which is pretty late. Uh, Twenty years into our fund, you know, we did our first global uh, global fund in in, in 05. and uh, I wish I had really spent more time looking at things like Japan in the late 80s uh, and, and other places. 
Latin America in the 90s. Um, but it's to keep your vistas open and don't, don't pigeonhole yourself too much. Um, there's, there's a reason you should be good at something specific. But once you, once you attain that, um, that knowledge or, or that experience, um, be, willing to, uh, be willing to look at lots of different opportunities um, in, that, uh, in that world. We have been speaking with Jim Chenos. He is the founder and president of Kinecos Associates. If you enjoy this conversation, well, look up an inch or down an inch on Apple iTunes. You can see any of the 330 or so such prior conversations we've had over the past nearly six years. We love your comments, feedback, and suggestions. Write to us at mibpodcast at bloomberg.net. Give us a review on Apple iTunes. You can check out my weekly column on Bloomberg.com slash opinion. Follow me on Twitter at Ritholtz. Sign up for our daily reading list at Ritholtz.com. I would be remiss if I did not thank our crack staff that helps put together these conversations each week. Charlie Vollmer is my audio engineer slash producer. Michael Boyle is my booker slash producer. Michael Batnick is my head of research. Atika Valbrun is our project director. I'm Barry Ritholtz. You've been listening to Masters in Business on Bloomberg Radio.